It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. It's our weekly chance to do a deeper dive into the week's news with a panel of award-winning journalists from throughout the East End. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27East.com, and also Express Magazine, which is coming out this week. Uh, my co-host is the managing editor of the Express News Group, Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you here. And our panelists this week are Denise Civiletti, who's the editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. Good morning. We have Christopher Ganjemi, who's a staff writer at the East Hampton Star. Hey, Chris. Hello. And Joe Workmeister, who's a staff writer at Newsday. Hey, Joe. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Good to have everybody here today. So let's start with uh, your big week in Riverhead, Denise. Uh, Quite a story that's, uh, I think, at least gotten a little bit of attention at the national level. Um, The town supervisor took a big step this week in reaction to a national story uh, that caught headlines. What did she do? Uh, The town supervisor on Tuesday night uh, signed an emergency declaration order declaring a state of emergency in the town of Riverhead because she heard reports of um, that New York City was negotiating with um, local hotels and motels here to bus migrants and asylum seekers to Riverhead for shelter. Now, the the background of that is that, as we know, um, beginning last spring, um, the states of Texas, Florida, and Arizona began busing uh, migrants that were coming over the border uh, undocumented asylum seekers. They were busing them to um, states run by Democratic governors. Um, and um, New York was one of them. And Mayor Ed- Eric Adams in New York City uh, says that he got 65,000 migrants dropped in New York City uh, because of that and over the last year. And when um, the expiration of the uh, Trump era COVID-19 policy that did not allow asylum seekers to enter the country while their asylum petitions were being processed and determined, um, they had to wait on the other side of the border, which was different. Um, That was set to expire. And Mayor Adams was extremely worried that that would mean Another another you know wave of many thousands of of uh, migrants and asylum seekers entering New York City. So um, everybody probably knows by now that last week um, he had arranged with uh, two hotels in um, Orange and Rockland County upstate um, to uh, house. I think it turned out to be like 180 people. And um, the county executives in Orange and Rockland, because there's this political context to all of this, who are both Republicans, got mad and uh, issued states of emergency in their counties. Um, Orange County actually sued uh, to to block it. And um, the New York Civil Liberties Union sued them to get, you know, to stop them from blocking it. And, you know, so as that's going on, so that's the backdrop. And then 
you know, the, the uh, talk radio machine on uh, WABC, the news uh, conservative talk radio out of Manhattan, um, was abuzz with this. And one of the, well, more than one of the, their hosts, but one of them really got on onto this, um, his, uh, Curtis Sliwa, the co-founder of the Guardian Angels, who, if you live in Riverhead, you probably know that uh, a, pr- a previous supervisor invited the Guardian Angels to patrol Riverhead streets after um, some Latinos were jumped and 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 mugged and beaten. Um, they came. They came to Hampton Bays at one point too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they came. They didn't stay long. There was not enough happening here, I don't think, to satisfy. <laughs> you know, but they they well they got the photo quest, up, and I think that was quest really for publicity. Stuff. Yeah, it was over quickly. So they came and left because you know anyway, but. You know, Curtis Lewa from back then was saying that, you know, Riverhead is a gang infested, crime ridden place. And mm. he says all kinds of really inflammatory things and uses a lot of really what I find to be personally offensive language to describe people because of their, you know, ethnic origins and stuff. Um, so but anyway, so, of so course, he kind of so- like he took he took off on that and he like started talking about that they're coming to Riverhead on the air. I don't know where he's gotten it, got this from. He didn't name any sources, but he knows what he's talking about. And he, uh, you know, he started, he started that narrative apparently Monday and it was uh, kind of the main thing on his radio show on Tuesday afternoon and Tuesday night, the supervisor of Riverhead issues this state of emergency Um I was sitting at my desk waiting for the uh, budget results to be, you know, finalized. And at, I get this press release at 930. I picked up my phone. I called uh, the supervisor on her cell and she actually answered, which these days is uh, unique. <laughs> um, she doesn't like to, uh, we ask too many questions. So anyway, she doesn't like talking to us, but she answered. And I'm sure she regrets it now because she told me that she heard reports that Curtis Lewa was talking about this on his radio show. And that's why she did the state of emergency. So so my question, Denise, is what's the real world impact of Yvette Aguilar um, declaring a state of emergency? What 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 is that? What does it do? It, it, it purports to prohibit local hotels and motels from housing migrants. You know, can that be done legally? Certainly the ACLU doesn't think so. And and so they, there's a federal but, lawsuit pending but, now. But 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 to put to Joe's point, too, and, and I think that I mean, you had a story, you know, about a, a, the town board meeting after that. And you had speaker after speaker well, come in and talk about the the. That, that it could be that it's fostering hate and hate speech and, and I mean, discrimination. You know, all you have to do is brace yourself and look at the Riverhead local Facebook page and you can see what it does in that respect. I mean, you know, the so, I, I you know, legally, I don't know what it, it might do, but here's the thing. Like, you know, the supervisor said that's why she issued this state of emergency order. And the next day. Um, Councilman Tim Hubbard, who is the Republican candidate for town supervisor this year because she is stepping aside, um, you know, he said the same thing. He said this order was based off that. 
She said that they were going to be, they were negotiating with three hotels, which coincidentally is what Curtis uh, Slewa said. And, but she couldn't name them. She couldn't name her sources. Um, she said she had not listened to Slewa's show herself, and nor did Hubbard. After he told me, yes, that order was based off of Slewa's show, he said he hadn't even listened to it. The people told him what Slewa was saying. So this is, uh, you know, astounding to me that that's how public policy is getting made, but especially something as serious as this. And it kind of, you know, I mean, it was on, it it got national traction. It got, it, you know, it was picked up by a lot of other media, CNN. She was interviewed on, on Fox News. And, um, you know, this story is now evolving. Um, yesterday, she, uh, not yesterday, the day before, in an interview with Newsday TV, she said that, um, she was informed of this by law enforcement. So I had already spoken to the chief of police about this, and I had I had a sense that he wasn't the law that Riverhead wasn't the law enforcement. So I asked him, and he said, "Was not us." He said, um, "I heard rumors, but there was no credible information." So where did she? What law enforcement? He asked me what law enforcement. I said, "I you know she didn't say it wasn't you know part of that interview." I don't know, but you know. We reported that. We also called up all. I mean, we there are a number of motel like motels in in Riverhead Town, a handful of them anyway. That house, you know, that provide emergency shelter for uh, people uh, placed by Suffolk County Social Services who are homeless. And so we got on the phone with those places and said, "Hey, you know, is this happening? Did you, you know?" Every one of them, we couldn't reach one operator. We left a message for the manager of one place, but um, the others all said, "No, we hadn't heard. We haven't heard anything from anybody about this. This is, you know, not happening here." We even then contacted the hotels, which I sincerely, I mean, they're booked through the summer. They're not going to be housing migrants. Hotel space is really hard to get. Hotel rooms around here, and they do well in the summer. They're not taking buses of migrants out here for that but we you know let's ask and they were like no that's you know so i mean i don't know where sliwa is getting his information but it, it doesn't seem to be from you know the real world in riverhead right now so here we, we are we, we should define our terms too denise you mentioned it um at the top um i think when people point to the crisis that's that's being created here. There's certainly more people coming across uh, the border since the change in policy. Um, no, I, I think just I think just the opposite. I mean, everything yeah. I'm reading says that that when Title 42 expired, migrant crossings dropped because it's it's more mm. it's more difficult now on, under the new policies. Um, you know, for for them for them to get in, it's not like it was an open door. Um, after no. after after Title Forty Two dropped, so um, I, I mean, I think there's still issues with you know with the you know as Denise said the you know the Republican governors busing people up to you know to 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 northern states, and I think that's a you know a very political issue, but an issue nonetheless. But but this was one of the points I wanted to make, Denise, is that first of all, these are asylum seekers. These are these oh. are people who are lawfully turning themselves in at the border and seeking asylum and their and their cases yep. are pending. These are not people who have snuck across the border or anything like that. That's They're right. Part of the process. And the second thing is that the the really high profile instances with the the Republican governors 
sending busloads north notwithstanding. A lot of the, the men and women who come across um, and seek asylum end up in our communities anyway because that, that's their ultimate destination anyway. And some, some of them, you know, I, I don't think most of the people who are seeking asylum, they may temporarily gather along those, those borders, but they do end up in different communities throughout the United States, right? And I would think that, that yeah. the East End is one of those places that, that if they have, if they have work. If they, if they have sponsors, they have, they if they have, have sponsors. Family, mm-hmm. family members, and and other communities. Yeah, yeah. My my point being, there there are pe- people coming in and coming into our community a lot. I, I think we're probably seeing that uh, pretty regularly, and it doesn't get headlines. Absolutely, and I, I mean, there are people here who sponsor asylum seekers. There yeah. are people here who, you know, there are there are people employing people who are undocumented. Uh, there. Are, I, It's been a while since I've had an updated stat on this, but according to the Farm Bureau a few years ago, like 70 percent of the farmers, you know, farming operations on the East End use undocumented workers because they don't have a choice. They have no they don't get enough of the the, uh, agricultural visas, people to come on agricultural visas and they can't they don't have other local people to do the work. So, you know, it's an ongoing thing. Look, we have we've had we've had a multitude of what I've, I believe are manufactured crises around this issue over yeah. the years. Um, you know, years back, there was this whole thing about unaccompanied minors. And there were people saying that we were going to have thousands of unaccompanied minors coming to Riverhead. Like, uh, you know, Riverhead's the magnet for the, I don't know, everything with this, according to some local people who are, you know, I feel like kind of just fear mongering and, yeah. and playing to that. Um, so, I mean, there were the unaccompanied minors, you recall the the caravans of people that were coming. I mean, that was another thing. Um, when they, when they opened a a Guatemalan, um, consulate in Riverhead, there were people going around saying that, uh, you know, this is because there's going to be a wave of people coming. It's, I, I I can't explain, I don't want to speculate on people's motives, but, you know, um, I I thought manufactured crisis one after another. Well, and and I I think sometimes the motives can can be clear, and and I think you know one of the speakers at at the town board meeting that you quoted in in or Alec quoted in in the story in Riverhead Local, you know, noticed that you know when you had asylum seekers coming from the war in Ukraine, they were all welcomed with with open arms, and yeah. you know, and and GoFundMe, you know, and raised money for them and clothed them and you know and gave them food and all that. But when they're coming from areas south of the border it's a whole different story and, and obviously there's a there's a difference between in numbers and, and and all that but i think the allegation of some of those speakers is is this is you know purely based in 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 race and and i think that often that may be true i i agree with you um you know it it blows my mind really to think about how people are happy to accept the labor of these folks for things that they need. But when it comes down to it, you know, let's not discuss rights and let's not discuss fairness and let's not discuss, God forbid, like minimum wages and days off during the week and things of that nature. Um, you know, there's resistance and then and all of the hate that just keeps flowing, the hateful language that you read and hear all the time. It's very dispiriting. I, I just, I, you know, 
I, I don't know, the woman that you're speaking of was actually sponsored um, an asylum seeker. And she came to the town board meeting with a folder, a notebook that was about six inches thick of papers and everything. And before this, this man's um, asylum application could be finally determined, um, he, he, he died from cancer. <laughs> I mean, it was a years long process, you know, um, but you have you have people like the Orange County executive, like a councilman here in Riverhead using that language that, you know, well, we don't know who these people are. They haven't been vetted. We don't know what diseases they are. They have. We don't know. They could be murderers. They could be rapists. They could, you know, that kind of language is being used here in Riverhead and, I, you know, by officials in, in the town. And um, and, and there, there, is, there is a process. These are people who are seeking asylum and and they're vetted to some extent, you know, coming across the the border when, and they're, you know, I, I don't think they're immediately granted asylum. And, you know, I mean, there's a process that they have to go through and there have to be hearings and 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 all that. But you, you would hope that there's something to catch scary people if there are scary people at that point. I think uh, you're you, talking, you, know, you know who you're had almost no family? vetting? You know who had almost no vetting for diseases or otherwise? All of our ancestors that came through Ellis Island. Yeah, and, thank you. Know, I mean, that, that's, you know, well, coming in legally, my my relatives came legally. They got off a boat and they were checked off on a list. Basically, I think people, you know, how much money do you have? I mean, my my relatives, I you know, I've looked at the manifest of that you can get uh, online and, and see how, how people, you know, arrived and what and what they did and, and what their their process was like. I mean, I my my great my grandmother and as a little girl. Um, and, you know, it was a, a an earthquake refugee from Sicily, you know, mm. came in that way. I, so it's like, I, yeah, I think it is race. I honestly, I, you know, I really do. Race is a big factor here. And the other thing that that really I feel like, you know, to be honest, to really deal with this issue, honestly, we, we all need to recognize the role that the United States of America played in making the mess that exists south of our border, mm. because we played this country played a role in that over decades, and and nobody ever talks about that. And, so, so Denise, what's the is this going to be a, a, a in the real world? Is this going to be something that just disappears in a couple of days? That it gets a lot of headlines and a lot of conversation, but in the real world isn't really going to have a very significant impact or, or is there a real possibility that this could have some resonance for uh, the next couple of weeks and months? Well, I, I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I think, you know, the answer is probably until next time, you know, until the next thing, because, you know, this just keeps happening. And, you know, I, I think that huh. it, the, the Suffolk County Supervisors Association in a statement issued this week agreed to by all 10 town supervisors, which the supervisor of the town of Riverhead completely mischaracterized. She said they supported her action. That's not what the statement said. I talked to the chairman of the association and I talked to another supervisor who's also a Republican. It, it specifically and intentionally did not say that it supported the state of emergency. What it said was that the federal government needs to do its job. The federal government hasn't done anything to fix this problem since 1986. Mm. And it's just gotten worse and worse. And it's a political game that's being played in Washington, D.C. with people's lives. And this is the net result. 
to your to your question, Joe, I would say the damage is done. Yeah, look, look, look the state of emergency probably people will stop talking about it in, in in a few days. You know, as long as you know buses don't actually show up in in, in Riverhead, which I, I of course they're not going to. But but the damage is done. The 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 you know the the statements have been made. You know the 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 hate speech is 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 out there the, from 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 the responses let alone from from public officials and you know it just it just further muddies you know muddies the issue and 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 spreads hate and bias and I, I until it, it I gets it fixed it's going to just keep happening i'm sorry joe Go ahead, joe uh, yeah no worries yeah, yeah i mean you mentioned this um supervisors um um 10 supervisors to their statement. I, I thought it was interesting just how this kind of, I think, really took all the uh, neighboring supervisors from uh, some of the eastern towns really kind of by surprise. Um, you know, the Southold supervisor kind of went so far as to call it an overreach and was pretty critical of it. And he's a Republican. You know, he's leaving office. So I guess he has a little leeway to be um, you know, a little more honest if he feels like it. And, um, you know, I, I talked briefly with uh, Southampton supervisor who was seemed like, uh, you know, he didn't really know anything that was happening and said he had talked to the governor's office and they were like, well, we don't know of any uh, migrants being bussed out to Riverhead. Uh, so he was like, well, I don't know where, you know, this is coming from either. And um, so, you know, certainly it seemed to catch um, some officials in, in the neighboring uh, towns by surprise as much as I think it uh, caught caught us by surprise. Any other Riverhead town officials, like other members of the town board, have they Hundred percent behind this. They're hundred percent behind it because that's what they said at the meeting. Uh, one councilman said, "Hundred percent." You know, yeah. we can't have this happening here. They, they are all, they're all in. I don't know. Well, um, but people nobody's, are, if, you know, if people are talking about mystery buses, then they're not talking about Calverton, right? That's true. <laughs> I went a whole Which, week without typing Sikra. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hot topic in River. We're gonna we're actually gonna talk about uh Calvin anyway. a little bit at some point here before we get around. But this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. Uh we've been talking with Denise Civiletti, uh, the editor of Riverhead Local. Uh we also have Joe Burkmeister from Newsday and Christopher again Jemmy from the East Hampton Star. And so I want to turn to another big thing that happened on the South Fork this week. Uh, which was the vote in Sag Harbor over the what have become shorthand in shorthand known as the Marsden acquisitions. Uh, this was a proposal for the Sag Harbor School District to buy some properties on nearby Marsden Street uh, that would have allowed them to basically expand the campus of Pearson uh, Middle High School. Uh, and you know the big question is what they would do with it. The school district had said that after having conversations with Southampton Town about maybe using community preservation funds and creating an athletic field on the site, after that fell through, they said they simply wanted to acquire the properties and then decide later what to do with them. Uh, that vote went down by 75 uh, votes on Tuesday, very close vote. And some are characterizing record, it as a, a record, record turnout yeah, yeah. Uh, to, for the vote for that. So, um, Chris and Joe, you guys have been watching this. And Chris, I know you live in Sag Harbor. The, one of the one of the real so we knew it was going to be a likely a fairly close vote, um, and it was, uh, and it could have really gone either way. But I I think 
in addition to talking about, so what's next for the district? Because that's a big question. Uh, looks like that that purchase is just going to go by the wayside. The fallout from the acrimonious debate that took place at Sag Harbor is really what a lot of people on both sides are talking about. This really deeply divided Sag Harbor, didn't it? Yeah, so much so that I don't even really want to talk about it. I mean, it's... <clears throat> um, yeah, it, it started PTSD at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, it started in the fall um, with, uh, you know, the uh, orange signs that came out. Um, you could say that the that the school district could have done a better job at communicating. But then I think that there was a lot of uh, distortion that happened, um, which you know, slanted the discussion. And then it, it, it be, there was a lot of distrust on both sides and uh, it hasn't been pretty. I don't know what happens next. I spoke with uh, Tronzo who owns the property. That's Pat Tronzo, right? Pat Tronzo, yes, sorry. And um, I guess that for me, as somebody who lives in Sag Harbor and, you know, uh, this pales uh, to the conversation we were just having about real problems in the world. But, you know, Sag Harbor, we get filled with quality of life issues. And, um, you know, everybody's uh, angry at the amount of uh, landscaping and all this stuff and the preening of the properties. What happens here is probably five new large houses right there in the middle of the historic district and i don't think if you just look a block north um or south um i don't think that this community needs that either which is something that i really it was discussed but i just i i feel like it was a little lost in the debate um you know for me That's that was essentially that's going to essentially be the result. Um, although I believe opponents of the Marsden purchase are holding out hope that Southampton Town had had a conversation with the district about using CPF funds to make that purchase, to, to help them make that purchase to create an athletic field. And eventually, I think both sides sort of walked away from that for different reasons. I think Southampton Town was was interested in helping, but the school district felt that all of the restrictions that using CPF funds to make that purchase would have just they they weren't satisfied with that. So the the thinking I think among opponents is well if you were interested in using CPF funds to help the district, you could come in now and buy that property with CPS funds and preserve it as a passive park. I don't know that Southampton Town has much interest in doing that, though. I mean, I'm a nature person, right? And uh, I I love using all the trails around here. I personally can't imagine why they would use CPF for that uh, land. It's it it is an old dump. I mean that that the history of this place there there was it was a dump there. It's been there, there's fill there, which um, you know the opponents also uh, mentioned was uh, you know full of stuff. They didn't know what kind of yeah. stuff was in there. You know, 
Uh, so I don't think that this is some um, pristine reserve. Yeah, it's you know? not a pristine piece of property. I, I don't I, think I, so. I, yeah. Go ahead, Bill. I, I, I can't imagine town officials would want to go anywhere near that property at this point. It was so, so controversial. They've got other things that they can spend the CPF money on. Um, Sag Harbor, you know, has has asked for CPF money for a lot of things, the Steinbeck Park and, and you know, the, the the movie theater and, you know, and, and other stuff. If the town's going to come in um, with a CPF purchase, why would you, you do it on such a controversial yeah. um, piece, piece of property? I just can't see that happening at, at this point. <laughs> And if, if, the, if Southampton was going to use CPF money for that, I would assume it would have to be more than the original six million they were going to put in, right? Because that was only part of the the total. Right. So they yeah, would the have to nine, come up with even, right, right. So I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of CPF for for that. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I mean, I think people see the CPF as a way of blocking unwanted projects, and I think I think that that Chris, I think your point that. The, the development that's been proposed there by Mr. Trunzo is probably going to come back to the table now. He had withdrawn his application uh, at a certain point. Um, he had had trouble. He hadn't been able to get approval for uh, what he wanted to build there before, and, but he did withdraw his application before there was any kind of final resolution to that. And he has said, I mean, he offered the property to the school district at what he said was a discounted price because he wanted to support the school district and this was something he was in favor of. He said now that he his plan is to turn around and he will resubmit his development plan. So this is likely uh, 75 votes decided this and the district really misses a chance to, to buy this property and expand a little bit. And it leaves a big question, Chris, as to what the school district's going to do now because they, they do have facility needs and they use Mishashamuit Park for most of their athletic needs. They have a field behind the school that they use. They basically said that they need to do something to expand. I mean, they talked about, you know, even other facilities, like even their gym facilities are really not adequate. So um, they're left with a, with a really tight uh, envelope to build on there uh it's it, there's a lot of questions now about okay now that marsden has been voted down officially what's next what do, what's yeah. the district do now yeah i think that the backfield there's you know i and I, I i think that the opponents rightly um drew a lot of attention to that it it hasn't really been used to you know in in a great way and mm -hmm. i and i i would hope that the the school could look at that and maintain it differently and better and perhaps can use that in a, a more constructive way well i think the issue though with that backfield is they use it for um for the for the phys ed classes too you need a you need an outdoor space um you know for for kids to go for for that and if you put a lot of money into a field there it's just going to get um it's going to get eaten up by by those classes i i, I mm. think um, you know, to the point of, of of Trunzo, you know, building five houses there. Well, well, perhaps inappropriate for the historic district. I think maybe um, that's exactly what 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 a lot of those neighbors wanted because you know that's a it's a better solution, it's a quieter solution to them than you know than a than a bunch of kids running around you know playing soccer and field hockey and yeah. 
and and whatever and and maybe you know i I don't put words in anybody's mouth but i I think that you know to to them if you're living next door maybe that's the lesser of two evils although you have a house next to a school i don't i don't know what you expect but i don't know either and i and i really you could walk down in sag harbor right now and there's going to be you're going to hear leaf blowers you're going to there'll be the rattle of the landscape trucks you know people are going to complain about the speeding on the 20 mile per hour speed limit you know roads uh so i don't think it's quieter and i think that the use is is um you know is more intense i mean yeah. uh than 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 a field i you know i i but, but i don't want to get into what i thought about the whole thing because uh, I, I, it was a difficult, it was a difficult thing. I, I really saw a lot of points on both sides, um, but yeah, I, five I, houses I, go there, and five, and 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 they're sodded, and they're full of Leland cypress trees and landscaping, and irrigation. Well, uh, that's yeah. what they voted for, so that's that's what it will be. I, I think you were right earlier, I mean, Chris, when you said that the the. The district may have um, had issues and communication yeah. issues from from day one, and I think probably because they were looking at, at two or three different kinds of deals. And town was it CPF? Was it this? Was it going to be that? And I think a right. lot got lost. And I, for me, my opinion, bottom line is is it's it's unfortunate that whether it was that or whether it was you know the strong opposition or or a NIMBY thing or whatever, the district does lose out because if this if these properties are developed. The district's never going to have another opportunity to buy four acres, you know, near the school for for whatever use they wanted. And, um, you know, we had editorialized early on that, you know, that that the position the district finally landed on is buy the property and then we'll figure out what we're going to do with it, that that was a good idea. But I think by the time they said that it, it was too late because you had, you know, the turf field field idea floating around, you had all this other stuff you know people were became distrustful of the district saying you know we're going to let you guys decide what what we're going to do with it um and, and you know and then to joe's point about you know what what's next let's not forget that there was a there was a, a an agreement in place with mash park board um you know to to pay for the improvements at, at the park and the athletic you know fields at the park and i, I think the district can now easily go back to that original deal that that they kind of put on hold and that um at least for now may may meet the athletic needs of 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 the district but um certainly there's no there's no there's no artificial turf field in 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 those plans one of the interesting elements with that bill is that the artificial turf field was proposed at at Mishashmuit Park and the park board rejected it there's a new proposal now, and a lot of the, the pro folks have been pointing to it, that this hybrid idea that that there's a field that they can now put in that's actually 100% organic, and it's just the, the, the structure of the field gives it sort of an artificial turf feel, but it but it's 100% organic. It sounds it's, like it's more, it's more more sturdy. Yeah, because the drainage is is better. Exactly, it's 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 more of a logistical thing than than using artificial turf to do it. It sounds like the Mashashimuit Park Board is at least willing to hear that as an option. So that may be a, a game changer when they have that conversation with the Park Board. But Chris, to put a final point on this conversation, we go back to I think the acrimony that came out of this dispute 
and and it really came from both sides because I think opponents may have been guilty of um, throwing out some numbers that um, I think were at least mischaracterized. I don't know that they were um, made up. I think that that they they used actual numbers, but they did mischaracterize them a little bit. But then the school board actually raised the level of acrimony a little too by sort of accusing opponents of fraud and suggesting that some of their statements were actionable. It, it left a bad taste in everybody's mouth. And I think that's something the district is going to be dealing with for a long time now. It, it's it's just spread some poison in the, in the community. Yeah, I hate it. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I, I hope, I hope that uh, it'll blow over and uh but you know i'm just i i have friends on both sides who are really strongly opinioned on it and i was never really too strongly opinioned on it i i uh, was actually at one point on either side uh but i don't think those friends are <laughs> really going to talk to each other uh, uh, or they shouldn't talk to each other about it it's kind of become you know how like you weren't supposed to talk about religion or politics and here just don't talk about marsden Hmm. <laughs> it's uh it's going to be something to keep an eye on as we go forward no question uh sac harbor's got to recover from this um which isn't always the case with a vote like this it's uh especially being so so close yeah I, I unusual mean, I, circumstance i think it left a lot of bad feelings yeah i thought it was just interesting hearing some people talking about who were in the room just the tension that was in the room as the, the vote was being counted and uh and it sounded like yeah you know, i was i wasn't in the room but it sounded like um you know got a little heated between some people at times and um there was at know, least one one confrontation i think between one opponent and uh sandy cruel who's the president of the school board uh that got a little right. heated but yeah yeah so i you know i've seen a lot of uh school board uh, election votes and you know even when things are tight you know you, you usually doesn't quite get to that level um you know especially in a small district like that so yeah really i think kind of exemplified just how how divisive the whole issue was i mean um something that you know from the outside you kind of looking in you wouldn't think would necessarily be all that controversial with the school trying to just acquire some property next to it <laughs> at yeah the, absolutely at most basic level and i think well, both sides both sides acknowledge the, the the damage that's been done and uh both sides talk about the fact that they're going to need to get past this so yeah we shall see. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Uh, our panelists today are Joe Workmeister of Newsday, Christopher Ganjemi from the East Hampton Star, and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Joe, um, I, I know you did a story this week about another issue that's happening in East Hampton. You know, we talk a lot about affordable housing, and one of the more popular strategies for trying to create more affordable housing is to increase the number of accessory dwelling units. And East Hampton is actively, East Hampton Town is actively looking to do that right now. They have a proposal on the table. Yeah. So the accessory uh, dwelling units, which essentially are, you know, adding some kind of an apartment in, in an already you know established home, you know, kind of a, a turning a garage into an apartment or a basement, something like that. And uh, it, you know, it's seen as one way um, to kind of combat the affordable housing crisis that is, you know, on the East End and also throughout the state and other parts. Um, and it was actually one of uh, one way um, that the governor had had pushed, um, and and one of her housing uh, 
proposals and in, in, in 2022 and um, got a lot of pushback and people, um, you know, fearing like the um, suburbs are going to turn into the cities and it's going to be overcrowded and, and all these um, uh, uh, different controversies are going to come if we allow uh, more accessory dwelling units. And um, But in East Hampton Town, they seem to be embracing the idea and are trying to actually add more. And so they've had this uh, pilot program that was implemented in 2016, I believe, and um, it set the number of ADUs in each hamlet um, that would be allowed, 20 in each hamlet. And what they found was they hadn't actually even reached uh, the limit of what was allowed. So under the current code, people weren't really, um, didn't, I guess, find the incentive to uh, try to add these uh, accessory dwelling units. And there was, uh, I think, 20 allowed per each hamlet and only one hamlet in East Hampton, I think, um, had actually gotten to the 20 and, and some other ones hadn't been any. And so they tried to look at, okay, well, why aren't people, um, you know, trying to take advantage of this? And how can we kind of simplify the process and make it so, um, you know, the, it's a little more incentive for um people to do it and then we can hopefully have more than what's uh, currently allowed and so they've been working on um, this for i think going back to late 2022 it's been uh, kind of ongoing discussions to try to nail it down and they seem to be uh, pretty pretty close now to the finish line and um, the, the proposal would ease um, some of this restrictions so um, uh, one thing for example the, the code would allow basements um, to be uh, converted into an ADU that hadn't been um, allowed before, and um, uh, it, it allows them allows them on smaller lots too, right? Than had been allowed. Yeah, and it can increase um, uh, the the square footage minimum. I think increases um, a little bit there, so um, they kind of open up. Uh, some more possibilities. And it seemed like what they were finding is, you know, the only real examples of when people were doing these essentially uh, for a family member, you know, you want to find, a, you need a spot for, you know, an older relative or maybe a, um, a young um, kid coming back from college, that kind of thing. And, you know, what, there weren't really examples of, um, you know, people just doing these to try to um, have an affordable apartment for, you know, for somebody coming out here to work or, you know, and, and that's kind of the issue where we're trying to find. Um, and and I think to... the problem there too was was just the the finances of it didn't really add up because when right. people and, and like you said, if you have a family member, I think it's a different financial conversation. But if you're looking just to add an, an accessory apartment to to have some income uh, to make your own mortgage <laughs> a little more affordable. You got to spend, um, spend 100 grand to, to, to the build money the you have to invest. And, and then I think because the town is allowing these as part of an affordable housing um, concern, they put limits on what you can charge for, right. for rent. Right. And when you do the numbers for what you'd have to invest to do that, it, it ends up just not, not adding up for a lot of people. But, but I think what's interesting here, and it's sort of been unspoken. I think the town is doing this and expanding the number of a, of of AD uh, what's the term ADUs uh, accessory mm-hmm. dwelling units they're expanding that I think because we have to remember that we've now started to collect community housing fund revenue and at some point the town is going to be able to use some of that revenue maybe to change that equation a little bit and if you have more accessory dwelling units in a community Maybe the town steps in and says, if you're willing to add on to you and, and re, you know, do whatever you need to do to create a separate 
apartment here. We're going to give you a grant to cover half the cost of that. Well, now that may that, that may just change the equation significantly for a lot of people. And so I think to some degree, this is sort of building a foundation for the next step, which will be to make it more attractive to to add these units. Yeah. Yeah, as you mentioned, we had the the Peconic uh, Community Housing Fund. The, the, the towns are you know working to develop plans now, and and so um, you know as that uh, money starts to come in eventually, then you know a lot of different ways that they could uh, the towns could try to use that, and that's you know a good example there of uh, something that I think the towns could definitely try to look look at doing in the future and make these a little more. Um, you know, better option for people, and they did as, as part of these code revisions. They are they would raise um, the limit of um, of you know what the, the percentage that they could charge um, by a little bit to you know maybe you know maybe that helps a little bit, but you know it's still you know when you start um, crunching the numbers and and as you know one person would say at one of the hearings you know becoming a landlord is you know it's, it's a lot you know, you're, you have to. You have maintenance that you have to you're responsible for and, and things you know may break down you have to pay for so there's um you know a lot of costs that come with it so you know that's not, not not easy yeah there's a lot of figuring to do chris the it's fair to say i think that when we talk about affordable housing this is the most attractive option to most people right I, it's the idea of building affordable housing in complexes sometimes brings out people who don't want that built near them. These accessory apartments are generally seen as a, a little bit more acceptable way to add more affordable housing to the community. Is that fair? I think that's fair, especially if you look at at the Potter proposal in, in Sag Harbor Village and, and the way people have you know come out against that. Um, even, you know, in a in Amagansett Village, there's uh, a proposal for 136 Main Street, which would add only four uh, affordable apartments over a retail space. But the look of it, you know, I mean, even though it's just a in the preliminary stages, people don't like the the boxy look of it. You know, how how do you make these larger structures look like they belong? It's mm -hmm. harder. So I think that you're right. The, you know, um, with the ADUs, uh, it it's a little decentralized, and you know, um, and also, I mean, look, when we talk about basements out in the Hamptons, it's it's not like your grandfather's basement. I mean, some of these basements are gigantic. I mean, gigantic. They they're really deep. I think in East Hampton Village, your basement can extend the footprint of your house by twenty five percent. So you know. It's, a lot of the times the houses out here are just the tip of the iceberg, yeah. you know, and what's below is huge. I don't think that a lot of those are going to be ADUs and they're definitely not going to be housing migrants, but you know, they're, um, they're large. Yeah. And, and well, there's an opportunity there. The, the yeah. nice thing about the apartments is it, it spreads it out to, you know, throughout the town. I mean, in East Hampton, you know, it, it's capped per per Hamlet or school district or or whatever the number, but it spreads it out throughout the town. It's not concentrated in one area where you have neighbors and community members saying, no, we've already done our share or, or whatever. It spreads it out. And, and you know, and I've mentioned it on the show before, I, I, I think that, um, you know, 
single family housing um, codes have have over over the past you know fifty years, seventy five years, hundred years, however long it's been. I, I think that that has 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 led to the affordable housing crisis across the country, and and this kind of circumvents that a little bit because then you don't have these you know single family um, you know properties you're, you're you're adding more density to to the individual properties and i think that really um helps attack the problem part of the problem and, and, though sorry joe no go ahead like in east in sac harbor village they did pass that that law with the adus probably about a year ago and that's when potter came in with his proposal yeah. however i don't think that they've had a lot of applications you know for these ADUs in the residential district, which so it's a nice idea, but I'm not sure if it's ever really going to solve the problem on the mass scale yeah. that that the, the housing. No, no I, I don't think it, it can be the total answer. I mean, I but I think it's certainly a part of the answer. You need to build apartment buildings in, in every single hamlet on, on the east and Riverhead aside, Denise, because I know that Riverhead's <laughs> done done a lot in recent years and, and built apartment buildings and, and all that. But um you know it, it needs to be a combination of things certainly the, the town is going to have to put its finger on the scale too with the chf funds to to try and make it more That's attractive to do that i think um we only have a couple minutes left but, but um chris i did want to talk about you wrote about uh a local institution out in east hampton um and tell us tell us a little bit about shaglong and and what the conversation is around it right now well the Shaguang Tavern is about 100 years old, and it has really a pretty storied history. Um, you know, people coming back from the war and just letting loose there and dancing. It's well documented forever. However, you know, fast forward to Montauk now, where in the summers there's, you know, throngs of people and partygoers. Um, what they used to do back in the day, um, push aside tables at a certain point and people would dance. Nowadays, the, the town wonders, is this a nightclub? Has this turned, has this morphed into a nightclub? It's not just a restaurant and a bar, is it morphed into a different use? And Shaguan got cited a couple of times last summer for that. Um, they appealed, um, uh, the building inspector basically said that that they were not operating as a restaurant, they were operating as a as a nightclub. They appealed and there was in December a public hearing. Uh, everybody came out on the side of the Shaguang at this public hearing and said, hey, listen, I remember like being in, in, in the 80s, bands were there and everybody was dancing. It wasn't, you know, um, this just restaurant. And Nonetheless, the ZBA upheld the building inspector's determination, but then a week later decided to reopen the hearing. The building inspector gave a new determination that said, yeah, dancing has been there forever, but only in this tiny little area of the bar. And then everybody came out again at this new hearing just last week and were like, no, that's just not true. And you had guys who were in their, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s talking about the old days and like getting choked up. You know, uh, and it was uh, a funny 
it was a really funny hearing, you know, and you don't get to say that a whole lot, you know, but it was kind of fun to listen to some of the old stories. You know, this guy, Sean Hewitt, whose dad has, who, whose father owned it really from, I think, 1970 to 2015, talked about, you know, in the 70s being a little kid. And he would go down on Sunday mornings because there were no tables in the room. They would all been pushed aside for the dancing. And he would just collect all the change and sweep the floor at the same time, you know, and it was so easy because there were no tables there, you know, and um, so it was really. But on the other side, now the the, the town ordinance guys, Kevin Cooper and um, Dave Brown, who's the fire marshal, they have legitimate concerns because you have 200 people. Dave Brown said he counted 200 people in the Shagwong. And then he was citing that that nightclub disaster in in Rhode Island. I mean, if there's a fire and you're in this tight spot, how do you get how do people get out? So they have legitimate concerns on the town side. And there's this balance, which I think Montauk has been struggling with of, you know, you need tourism, but you also need some kind of control. And it's a difficult needle to thread. You know, Chris, I think it's interesting. It's kind of a microcosm for a bigger conversation that's happening, too, because we had the Southampton Social Club that the state liquor authorities come down on for similar reasons. We've got the big debate over the future of the Forty Barn. Uh, you know, the the nature of clubs in the region have been sort of wiped out over the years. So it's 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 a little bit of a of an interesting uh, comparison of old and new and, and trying to figure out the new use. We're out of time. I wish we could. I, kind of wish we had more time to dive into this because I think that's an interesting topic. Can we do, we'll come back to can it. we do a future episode of this live? Absolutely. At the, at just, the next just, Morty Barn? Just yeah. talk to the club. Right from the Morty Barn. I think there's enough to have a conversation with that. Thank you to Joe Workmeister from Newsday, Christopher Thank Gangemi you. from the East Hampton Star, and Denise Simulani from Riverhead Local. We appreciate Thank it, guys. You. Thank you to my co-host, Bill Sutton. Uh, I'm Joe Shaw. We'll be back next week with Behind the Headlines. Thanks, everybody.